I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. So I'm really excited about this episode with Bob Litterman. For those of you who aren't familiar with him, Bob is perhaps best known for his work alongside the late Fisher Black, resulting in the development of the Black Litterman Global Asset Allocation Model. Bob is currently a founding partner of Kepos Capital following a 23-year career at Goldman Sachs, where he oversaw the Quantitative Investment Strategies Group in the Asset Management Division. He's co-author of seminal finance books such as The Practice of Risk Management and Modern Investment Management and Equilibrium Approach. Inducted into Risk Magazine's Risk Management Hall of Fame, Bob also serves on the boards including the World Wildlife Fund, the Common Fund, and Resources for the Future. But I want to take a slightly different tact from my typical intro. What I mean is that I've asked Sandy Rattray, Man Group CIO, to give a bit of context about why climate and ESG risk are interesting and challenging from the perspective of quantitative finance. And bear in mind, as co-inventor of the widely used VIX or volatility index, Sandy comes from this world. And also, if a Bob Litterman fan club actually existed, Sandy would undoubtedly be a card-carrying, if not founding member. Which is absolutely true. I was one of the first users of the Black Litterman model in the early 1990s. I read all the papers back to front as a uh, young quant at the time. I don't think I've been issued with the card yet, but were there to be cards issued, I would be a proud owner of one. And so I started out by asking Sandy why understanding climate risk is so important for financial markets. Climate risk is, as you said, a risk which is very hard to quantify, but you know if you get it wrong is going to be very costly for your portfolios. And that's actually like a lot of other risks that we run where some risks are fairly easy to determine and some are harder to determine. This one is clearly a known risk. So not thinking about how climate change risk affects your portfolio it really would be an enormous gap um, in terms of thinking about the riskiness of your portfolio and what you've exposed yourself to. So I think that's one reason. And then the, the second reason, I think, is that the world is moving this way anyway. Irrespective of any individual's personal views, the world is clearly moving to a place where Companies are scrutinized much more heavily, where investment is taking place in sectors which are more climate change friendly. And if you don't get that right, then you're on the wrong side of what is, I think, very likely to be a very long-term trend. And so, as I say, irrespective of anybody's individual views, it's reasonably clear that societies as a whole are focusing on investing in climate change-friendly technologies and companies. And getting that right is, I think, essential uh, for thinking about portfolios over the long term. I also asked him about the challenges of examining data in this area and what can be done. There are a couple of challenges. One is the data, which we can come back to, and the other is that a lot of these effects are very long-term and... Of course, we're, as an industry, often criticized for being short-term, and we can determine, you know, debate what the word short-term actually means. But these effects that we're talking about are genuinely long-term. They're measured in decades or more than decades, and they're quite hard to discern in, in sort of more observable short-term data that we often use for making decisions, even if we're long-term focus. So I think that is one challenge, is separating the noise from the trend and working out how to respond to the trend instead of getting out that noisiness. So there's the observed data of climate change, which I think everybody knows about. It's very difficult data. But then secondly, when you look at companies, then uh, the data from different vendors on ESG it conflicts heavily from one vendor to another. 
Um, and that's not helpful. It's probably one of the least consistent data sources that we have. So you have this challenge that you know that this is an important issue, but your ability to measure it is poor. And I think that does give opportunities to use statistical techniques to combine the data sources sort of more effectively than maybe some naive ways of doing it would be. So there are opportunities, but we shouldn't lose sight of the challenge either. The advantage of quant, certainly historically, and we may see some change of this in the next few years, but certainly historically has always been breadth. And the advantage of discretionary strategies has generally been depth. Um, so breadth, lots of securities. Um, what quant can clearly do well at is getting a theme implemented well across a broad portfolio and to do that very consistently over time and not to get attached to themes if the data changes or something like that. So the advantage of quant strategies in ESG is clearly going to be that if you design a particular set of preferences and you obtain your data, which is going to be messy, then you can still apply that messy data and and influence your portfolio in the way that you had originally designed to from your set of preferences. And now... Here's the interview with Bob Litterman. Welcome to the show, Bob. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Jason. Perfect. I'm excited. I'm really excited about this episode. I want to start out with, with your background because your arc over time is really interesting. You, you sort of seem to represent an anomaly in my mind. Um, you come from an academic background that includes science and econometrics. You spent more than two decades in the financials markets studying risk. But somewhere along that arc, you took a turn towards climate change issues. And I want to explore that. You've advocated for carbon pricing. You've joined the boards of the World Wildlife Fund, among others. What motivated that? Was it what drove that enlightenment? I guess kids, you know, today would call it a certain kind of wokeness. What, what's that about? Okay. Well, uh, it's true that uh, I, I started out very much in uh, quantitative areas uh, in finance and uh, moved then into risk management at Goldman Sachs and. Uh, was uh, in asset management at Goldman Sachs uh, and starting to wind down my career and start thinking about what am I going to do post-Goldman when uh, one of my partners there, Larry Linden, uh, came to me and asked me to lunch. I went to lunch with him and he said, Bob, are you interested in environmental topics, which I had never been involved in? And I said, well, I, I could be. I have this background in human biology as an undergraduate and I've been, I guess, interested in climate change for a long time, as probably many people have heard about it over the years, but I'd never really studied it or dug into it. But I thought of it from a risk management perspective. And I said to Larry, well, you know, I could be, I, you know, I'm interested in risk and this seems to be a risk management issue. Uh, and, and so Larry introduced me then to a couple of organizations that he was involved in. The World Wildlife Fund was one. And uh, I got involved with uh, WWF. I met with their president, Carter Roberts, who's still their president. And I, uh, you know, kind of hit it off, joined their national council, later uh, became a board member and started working with their climate team. And that's really what got me interested. And I do remember early on saying to Larry, you know, it's very clear what the problem is here. This is a risk management issue. We're not pricing the risk and therefore... We're taking too much risk. We need to price it. And Larry said to me, well, Bob, that's a great insight, you know, coming from an economist. I, <laughs> not so insightful, really. But <laughs> but he said, you know, the problem is no one has a clue where to price it. And I thought, well, wait a minute. That can't be right. You know, there's got to be a lot of academic work on this. And I'm a Ph.D. in economics. I've studied risk management. Uh, this is something that might be kind of interesting for me to Study And so I started reading the literature. And that's when I realized that actually the literature, I mean, Larry was kind of right. It wasn't a good literature. Mm -hmm. There's tremendous uncertainty, or there certainly was in that time. A recent UN report on, uh, on climate change, one of these IPCC reports, had a whole box on the limitations of uh, economic models of climate risk. And they pointed out that these models can give you answers anywhere from $2 a ton to $200 a ton. Mm -hmm. And that's not very helpful. And they were right. Mm. Look, the problem is that we're doing an experiment on the planet that's never been done before. We don't have a lot of data. 
There's tremendous uncertainty about what's going to happen. And then there's uncertainty in these economic models, not only about the damages, but also about how do you think about tremendously uncertain futures that no model can accurately get. Any model is an approximation. We know it's going to be wrong in many ways. And so what do you do when there's, you know, sometimes economists make a distinction between risk and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Risk is a a number that comes out of a model, a a variance or a a volatility or a value at risk. Those are all model-based measures of risk. Uncertainty is the reality that we have to manage, which is the real world is not a model. And there's a lot that we don't include in our models. And so basically when you have that kind of uncertainty and you don't trust your model, you have to be more cautious. You have to err on the side of caution. And in the case of climate risk, that means, you know, you have to be at the upper end of the price range, which is how you always have to behave when you have that kind of danger and you're not sure you're going to be able to avoid it. Yeah. Before we get into those models and and we talk about the necessity really of, of having to price greenhouse emissions. I want to keep it really wide open because one theme or one, one variable that you talk about in a lot of your articles time and time again is, is time. It's time compression. Um, and I was actually particularly sort of interested in one article where you sort of likened it to, uh, your own personal experience, a flaming truck barreling toward us. It was sort of a, a near death experience that you had. Can you talk about um, even in the abstract, I mean, why time and time compression is such an important component and a distinction between the idea of risk and uncertainty from a risk manager's perspective? Sure. Well, the, the basic idea, and I have to say one of my colleagues from Goldman first talked about this, so this is not an original idea with me, but one of our risk managers in the asset management division, Jacob Rosengarten, I heard him talk about this at a, at a conference, so that's where the idea came from. But he basically pointed out, which is true, that if you have enough time, you can solve almost any problem. And so when you're managing risk, if you don't start immediately and you don't know how much time it's going to take to solve this problem, you can get into trouble so that a risk can become much worse if you don't address it immediately. And this was certainly true at Goldman Sachs. If we identified a risk management issue, it was always a priority. In my entire career at Goldman, and and at Goldman, let me just say that we thought of everyone as being a risk manager. Every employee had risks to manage. And we always, when we saw, identified, and addressed a risk management problem, it was always the priority. We had risk management meetings every week, you know, and I can't imagine an executive at Goldman saying, you know, well, let's come back to that. I have more important things. A risk management issue was always escalated immediately. And if a manager didn't escalate it as a risk manager, you could go up the line and just raise it up and up and up. And the risk committee at Goldman includes all of the senior executives, all the way up to the CEO. So risk management, it's, you know, sometimes I call it a trump card. It's just something that has to be given priority. And You know, sadly, looking at climate change and the way our government has not addressed it or governments around the world, and we could talk about what all the reasons are, but as a, as a person with a background in risk management, it's just appalling. If I could elaborate on that, because you asked about time compression. Mm -hmm. And let me say, I've experienced it a few times in my own life, and it's not a physical compression of time. It's not a physics concept. It's more of a psychological concept. It's when, you're addressing a problem or not addressing it, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, my God, I might not have enough time here. It was very much part of the quant meltdown in uh, 2007 where I had a big business in quantitative asset management, and we were managing portfolios that took a long time. They were big, and you had transactions costs, and so you slowly evolved them over time in terms of changing the positions and so on. And in the quant meltdown, all of a sudden, positions that we thought we would have months to get out of became necessary to try and get out of them. And we realized we had days or hours. Hmm. So that was very much time compression. All of a sudden, we're sitting there realizing, oh, my God, our normal trading isn't going to work. And by the way, everyone else in this space is trying to get out as well. And so there's just no liquidity and no ability to get out. We're stuck. 
Now, in that case, and that was early on in the financial crisis, Goldman was able to uh, bail us out, and we did all right. Later, and you mentioned this incident where I was driving with my wife, and there was a tanker full of gasoline that was involved in an accident and came straight at us, landed right in front of us and burst into flames. My wife saw it first and said, oh my God, Bob, watch out. And I slammed on the brakes. We we missed running into that flaming truck by a fraction of a second. And I mean, it was all over in a few seconds, but boy, that was just, uh, you know, seared into my brain. And I realized as I thought about it later that it was a lot like the climate crisis that, you know, we see something coming at us. At first, it's a long way away, but, you know, we don't know how much time we have. We have to address it now. How do you think about addressing it? You spent the last five to seven years, I think, really advocating for carbon pricing. There are a lot of reasons for for why that hasn't happened, at least in the U.S. How do you think about recalibrating that discussion? Can you re-enter it at another level, i.e., more at the asset allocation level. I mean, what can be done without solving for a carbon price? Well, we have to build better risk model. We have to do a lot of things. So let me back up just a step because it's all about incentives. You know, incentive is a word I like more than pricing. What are incentives? Incentives are very fundamental. Anything that motivates a change in behavior is an incentive. Whether you're, you know, training your dog or you're saying we have to change the behaviors of 7 billion people on this planet, you've got to change incentives. The reason that we're in trouble today is because we're not pricing the risk. We're not creating the incentives to reduce the externality associated with greenhouse gases. So if we're going to change that behavior, it means we're going to change incentives. And there are many things that can be an incentive, but for humans today in a free and open society, incentives are basically prices, wages, you know, and the way we allocate our incomes is determined by those prices. That's how we behave. And so that's why carbon pricing is at the center of addressing the climate risk problem. Now, it's not the only thing. Certainly, we need lots of other things such as regulations, such as research and development, you know, government support for science and so on. But at the heart of it is the incentive structure, and at the heart of that is pricing greenhouse gas emissions. So that's what I realized a long time ago. The uncertainty in what the right price is is a reason to get started sooner and you know, to be err on the side of caution. One of the big advantages of the Black Litterman model is being more intuitive, being able to sort of make looser assumptions relative to mean variance. Talk about how maybe the Black Litterman model lends itself a little bit to starting to embed climate risk in some way, or how you think the next evolution of models might be able to better do that. Okay, well, Black Litterman is a model that tries to optimally balance risk and return. That's really the objective of investing is to get the highest return for a given level of risk. And uh, if you think about climate change, it's related to that problem in the sense that we want to create an appropriate price, an appropriate return, if you will, toward reducing greenhouse gases. So there's an analogy there. But more directly, when you're using Black Litterman, you're trying to basically take advantage of views that you have about returns of different types of assets. And when we think about climate change right now, the question as an investor that you always have is, are assets priced appropriately? And so in Black Litterman, the starting point is an equilibrium where all assets are priced appropriately, which is to say that they have an expected return that's proportional to their contribution to portfolio risk and equilibrium. Everyone's holding a market portfolio. And so it's your expected return is proportional to the risk that each asset contributes to the portfolio. But then you look for is the world really in equilibrium? And of course, it's never in equilibrium. There's always shocks to the system and, you know, things are, are moving around. And with respect to climate change, I don't think we're in equilibrium. Now, you know, maybe some people think we are, but my view is that we haven't yet addressed it appropriately. 
that we are going to address it. We're going to move the economy toward a low-carbon economy. There's going to be a transition. And I think most people assume that that transition is going to continue as it has to date, which is to say slowly. And I don't think that's the case. So I have a view. Mm. My view, which is not based on analysis of historical data, because this is the first time that we've encountered this problem, my view is that we're going to price and we're going to create the appropriate incentives to reduce emissions. It's the only hope we have of getting through this. And I think when we recognize this problem, we're not going to slowly increase the incentive. We're going to say, well, what is the right incentive? And the answer is, well, we don't really know. So we're going to have to, as I sometimes say, we're going to have to slam on the brakes. You know, when my wife said, oh, my God, Bob, look out. I didn't ease on the brakes. You don't ease on the brakes in that situation. And that's the situation we're in now. In fact, we haven't even reacted. If if you think about it, we're sort of at the point where someone has said, oh, my God, watch out. And we're still sitting here not doing anything. The incentives globally go the wrong way. Yes, there are some places where we have modest incentives to reduce emissions. But globally, when you think about all the subsidies that governments provide toward both the consumption and production of fossil fuels, the incentives go the wrong way. So basically, we're still driving with our foot on the accelerator, and we haven't yet moved to break. And when we do break, we're going to slam on the brakes. And the only break we have are the incentives that we create. And so we're going to do that, and that's going to lead to a very rapid transition to a low-carbon economy. Now, as an economist, I'm pretty optimistic that once we create those incentives, the reactions of individuals and of the economy is going to be much quicker than most people expect. So that makes me somewhat of an optimist. But we don't have a lot of time, and we don't know how much time we have. And that's why right now I think investors have to be thinking about what are the implications of a rapid transition to a low-carbon economy. And that's going to affect the valuations of assets. How do you think about it in the most helpful way, again, without a global price to carbon? Can we think about it in terms of factor allocation? Well, Black Litterman looks for views. So this is a view. And what you try to do is you try and look for, are there situations where assets have a return that's not proportional to their risk? If it's too low, then you want to sell that asset. If it's higher than it should be, then you want to buy that asset. And you expect that over time, the forces that push things toward equilibrium, as other people see this, that's going to cause either a higher return or a lower return. And so that's what you're looking for. In this case, in terms of looking for mispriced assets, I would say the first place to look is at what we sometimes call stranded assets, assets that won't be as valuable in a you know rapid transition to a low-carbon economy. So let's start with, say, coal. And I think you've already seen a dramatic decline in the expected use of coal into the future. You know, uh, there are a few coal plants that are still being built in developing countries, but really, you know, we've been reducing our reliance on coal in the developed world. And so the long-run demand for coal is going to be much lower. And the valuations of coal companies have been collapsing. I remember, oh, it was six years ago, I was uh, chairing the investment committee of the World Wildlife Fund, And we decided to try and eliminate our stranded asset risk from our portfolio. So we were uh, looking to sell coal. Uh, We didn't have a lot in our portfolio, but we had little bits here and there in our, you know, private equity and in uh, hedge funds and uh, active equities. And we uh, ended up doing what we call the stranded asset swap, where as an overlay to the portfolio, we sold coal and we received the uh, return on the market. There, There were some other stranded assets as well. I remember one of my partners from Goldman saying to me, Bob, you're crazy to be selling coal. Do you realize it's half the price it was a few years ago, these coal companies? And, you know, I I thought, well, I didn't know that, you know, but we don't want to own coal, so we're going to sell it. Well, you know, shortly after that, coal went essentially to zero. Most of the coal companies went bankrupt. So that was a very nice overlay in the portfolio. And it just shows, you know, if you're going to zero, at some point, you're going to be half the value you were. It doesn't mean you're cheap. It's a function of where you're going. And similarly, today, coal has been recapitalized, but it continues to underperform. And other stranded assets, such as expensive sources of oil. 
and now let me talk about oil because it's a little bit more complicated there. We're going to be using oil for a long time into the future. You know, many of these oil companies will talk about the fact that their reserves are going to be needed by the infrastructure today, especially transportation that uses oil. Well, the question, though, is which oil are we going to use? And so if you recognize that there is going to be a low-carbon economy, that there's going to be a rapid transition, then you recognize that there's going to be a lot less long-term demand for oil. If there's less long-term demand for oil, then countries like Saudi Arabia that have a big reservoir of oil are going to wonder whether they can sell that oil, you know, 50 years into the future. They have a long horizon for their, you know, development of that oil. Every day they can think about, should I be selling more today or should I be leaving it in the reservoir? They're not constrained on the amount they can sell. But they do recognize that if they increase production, then that's going to cause a lower price for oil in the world markets. So they have an incentive to think about the price of oil today versus the future. And if you think, well, the price of oil in the future is going to be lower, then you're going to take market share today. You're going to sell it. Even though it lowers the global price, you're going to sell more today. And that's the way that you maximize the net present value of that asset that you own. People often talk about, well, they need, they have a certain budget that they have to meet, and therefore they need a certain price for oil. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is how do I maximize the net present value of that asset? So I'm going to take market share. I'll be hurt because the long-term demand for this asset of mine is lower, but the way to maximize the value in that world is still to take market share today. And on the other hand, if you have a high price, let's say you own reserves of tar sands, then if you have a lower long-term demand for oil and you have low-cost producers like Saudi Arabia who are taking market share, you're not going to be able to make a profit with that expensive source of oil. So basically, all producers are going to be worse off, but some are going to be more impacted than others. And so when you look at oil companies, you have to think about what are their projects, what's the break-even rate, how are they going to be impacted by long-term downward shift in the price of oil, and what does that mean? And so there's a relative value analysis there, and it's a bottoms-up analysis, kind of a fundamental analysis. And so when you think about how do I allocate within this sector, you may want to underweight the sector. You may want to look for companies that are better positioned than others to do well in the context of a rapid transition. You're almost making a pretty good case for you know the, the accumulation of all those observations, the higher cost of capital for some of these assets, the stranded assets particularly some of the European utilities, the fact that some countries, Spain and Germany, for instance, are phasing out thermal coal, for instance, mm-hmm. over the next decade. But the accumulation of that seems to suggest there is a tipping point for investors to form a view and start to integrate that in, in models like yours. Am I right? Well, you could be too early. You know, there were investments in solar maybe 10 years ago that didn't pan out so well. And so, yeah, timing is is part of it. I happen to think right now we're at a point where already, if you look at that stranded asset swap that we put on at the WWF five years ago, it's done really well. It's up 100% over five years. I think that's accelerating now. So I think it's definitely a time now that investors should be thinking about this rapid transition and adjusting their portfolios. And then, by the way, I hope they'll help me, you know, uh, accelerate carbon pricing around the world, which I think is right around the corner. Let's talk a little bit more about climate risk, particularly in a, in a Black Litterman context, um, just because the Black Litterman model is so adaptable, it's so flexible, um, and it can sort of take this view. I mean, talk about it because it seems it seems really adaptable to what you talk about and how you frame climate risk around something called a robust, optimal control problem in that there's not just a time compression problem, but there's non-linearity, there's uncertainty, not just risk. There are these three big problematic factors that historically have had a problem you know, in terms of pricing or understanding that risk. Okay. Well, when I think about asset allocation and how we build uh, a concern about the uncertainty of how quickly we're going to move to a low-carbon economy 
into a portfolio, it seems to me that we have to be aware that there is tremendous uncertainty that historically has led us to respond slowly. It's very natural to think we have to gather more information. We have to understand this problem. And this is a very uncertain problem. It's a problem where that uncertainty shouldn't be seen as a reason to go slow, but rather a reason to be cautious. And in this context, once we think about, okay, what do we have to do, then we have to be prepared for the worst case. When you think about risk management, and this is a risk management problem, I think people are now recognizing it, you've got to think about worst case scenarios. I remember early on at Goldman, one of the partners who was in charge asked me, what's the worst case in our swap book? Well, I remember coming back with the answer, I can't give you a number that's a worst case. It could always be worse than that. The best we can do is talk about, let's say, extreme but plausible scenarios, and then how often do they occur, and things like that. When we think about climate and being prepared, we're not going to price emissions today assuming that the worst case is 100% likely. It's a probability, but over time, we're going to find out are we heading toward the worst case or are things better than we thought? And once we create these incentives, does the economy respond more quickly or less quickly than we thought? There's going to be a lot of information that's revealed. And so we have to respond to that new information. One of the mistakes that a lot of these carbon pricing proposals make is to think that today we can set a trajectory for the next you know, 20 years for the carbon price. No, we have to respond to new information. We're always going to have to respond to that. Similarly, when you build your portfolio, the best you can do is say, let me set it up for what I think is going to happen over the reasonably near term, and then I'll adjust it over time. When you think about dynamic asset allocation, which is a much harder problem than the static, then you've got to bring in what are going to be the transactions costs and, you know, I'm going to adjust my portfolio, but I can't adjust it that quickly. And that's a much more difficult problem. And that's a problem that kind of parallels society's response to climate change. We have to take some steps immediately, and then we have to adjust over time. So it's a dynamic optimization. And in the context of addressing climate change, it's what we call robust optimal control. The robust is that we don't really understand the system that well. So there's going to be shocks to the system, and then we're going to see how it responds. In particular, when we price emissions, how quickly do new technologies come online? How quickly do individuals change their consumption patterns? How quickly does new capital get deployed? How quickly do the financial flows move in the right direction? As an economist, I'm very optimistic about that. I think we will respond quickly. And I would also say there's going to be new technologies. We don't know what the technologies are going to be for direct carbon capture 20 years from now. And actually, that's a very important determinant of where we should be pricing emissions today. You know, some people say, oh, you know, the price should be $5,000. No, no. It's, you know, it, you're not going to charge more for someone to put emissions in the atmosphere than it costs to take them out. That <laughs> They'd have a profit opportunity there if, if that was the case. So if we know that we're going to be able to take carbon emissions out of the atmosphere for $100 a ton 20 years from now, well, we're not going to charge $300 to put it into the atmosphere today. So that's the sense in which there's so much uncertainty. We have to be prepared for alternative futures. That's what robust optimal control is all about. And, you know, one of the solutions to robust optimal control if you're interested in building a system, is to shock the system and see how it responds, gather some information. Similarly, today, when we price emissions, you know, we're going to learn a lot. That's going to determine what the price trajectory looks like into the future. As we build portfolios, you know, we have to make judgments about how likely are these different future outcomes to be. And as in any other investing, there's no certainty about it. Different people are going to come to different conclusions. But I think it makes sense for all investors, as well as entrepreneurs and businesses and individuals, to be thinking about, you know, what are the likelihoods of these different trajectories? Yeah, it's actually a great way to sort of frame the relevance, um, the importance, really, of, of the TCFD, the, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, and the importance of scenario modeling, right, and scenario analysis, and trying to understand relative to 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius 
where you are on that trajectory rather than sort of a static picture of, you know, your footprint. Right. Scenario analysis is a very important, maybe the most important tool that we have in risk management. And uh, yes, when we think about the TCFD and what it means and why it's important, it's important because disclosure, uh, you know, and transparency of understanding businesses is so important to investors and so important to corporate governance. And uh, disclosure then creates a framework for communication and discussion between asset owners and managers. And ultimately, managers report to asset owners. That's really, to me, the importance of uh, corporate disclosure and the TCFD. Yeah. What are some of the lessons learned from your perspective when you look at some of the markets out there, the EU's emissions trading scheme or the market that China's currently building right now, or Reggie, for instance, in the U.S.? Well, all of those markets that you mentioned, they're good. They're, they're putting a price on carbon, but they're very low. The incentive that's created in the EU, you know, particularly when it was down around five, six euros per ton, it just wasn't going to do the job. Now, it's quite a bit higher now. I think it's in the mid thirties. You know, that's not high enough, but it's a lot better than, you know, five dollars or whatever. At, at the low. And similarly with Reggie, it's a very low price. With the California carbon market, it's a very low price. China's starting at a very low level. We have to get to a significant incentive to reduce emissions. I think what's going on is that these other markets are kind of leading the way, but they're waiting for the U.S. In the U.S., we don't have a federal incentive to reduce emissions. The U.S. is the, you know, one of the richest countries. We have a long history of producing greenhouse gases. And the rest of the world is saying, well, you know, we have to do this together. And, you know, the U.S. isn't doing it. So why should we, why should China, a developing country, be made worse off or India or, you know, some of the really poor areas of the world? They, it's easy to argue this is not our problem. We didn't create it. We're waiting for the U.S. to take the lead. Now, I think the U.S. is very close to starting a federal pricing and at a significant level. And I think the issue is how quickly can we get to a globally harmonized price at an appropriate level? And, and that's where we're going. How hard has it been for you as an academic and in quantitative finance to, to recognize the economic rationale for this, but to have to reconcile it with behavioral problems with policy with with that mess it's been very frustrating i can remember years ago thinking this is easy you know i'm a recent entrant into this maybe a decade ago i thought this can't take that long it's time to do something it's a risk management problem i've never seen where you put a risk framing on something and people don't get it so it has been frustrating and uh, you know i started working with the world wildlife fund originally and then I've joined a number of other organizations trying to understand what are the impediments. Well, it turns out that the impediments are many. You don't see the pollution. You don't smell it. It's transnational. It's transnational. The, the impacts are going to be decades into the future. It's very uncertain. There's embedded industries that benefit from not having appropriate incentives. There's been a lot of efforts to put this off and let someone else deal with it. So if you watch the UN process, the, we don't have a strong global governance structure. The UN wasn't set up to address issues like this. You know, there's a free rider problem that every country is better off if other countries do more and they do less, and we benefit from their actions. It doesn't cost us since we're not addressing it. So this has really made it a tough global problem. It's easy to make the argument that, you know, the U.S. has reduced its emissions dramatically, and it has. We've moved over the years toward a cleaner economy. The biggest polluter today is China, and point the finger at China. You know, they have to do something. We don't. Well, in the meantime, what we all have to do is create appropriate incentives, and the U.S. should provide a leadership role. So, yes, it's been very frustrating. I feel like I'm a bit more skeptical just having seen the evolution of the EU emissions trading scheme sort of evolve. And, and like you said, the knee-jerk reaction from many of the EU states was protect strategic industries as they allocated the allowances. And the invisible hand in the markets didn't really feel so invisible. How can we make less bad decisions in the absence of a global 
carbon price from a risk management perspective, particularly if you are not just running a single portfolio, but if you were trying to allocate across a lot of assets? (laughs) How can we make progress if we don't have appropriate incentives? The answer is we won't. We won't. You know, you and I can really care about this a lot and want to do something individually. It won't be a drop in the ocean. You know, and by the way, we don't even have the information we need. You know, if I make a decision that I'm going to commute into the city today, should I take the train or should I drive my car? Well, you know, how much carbon does that train produce? I don't know. How much does my car, you know, produce? I drive a Tesla, but is the electricity creating pollution somewhere? I don't know. And just multiply that by the thousands of decisions that we make unconsciously every day. We just don't have the information. There's no way to even think about one of my uh, former colleagues from uh, the World Wildlife Fund has tried to wean herself and her family off of electricity. Well, it's an immense effort, okay? That's the bottom line, and that's for every individual. You've got 7 billion individuals who are making their own decisions. The only way we're going to make progress is to create appropriate incentives. Incentives are like gravity. You know, they're a force, okay? We can't just go up when gravity is pulling us down, And on the other hand, when gravity is pulling us down, we're all going to be held close to the earth. So incentives have to go in the right direction. That's just how it works. So let's talk about this in the context of insurance, which you've used as a parallel in in the past. Yeah, well, insurance is interesting. If you can buy insurance, if there's a risk that's insurable, then there's no risk premium. Okay, if you ask, how much am I willing to pay to insure my house? That really doesn't matter. The price of the insurance on the house is basically an actuarially fair uh, question of how likely is it that that house is going to burn and the damage distribution. And the insurance company has lots of uh, evidence about that. And so they determine, you know, what's the cost of the insurance to you. It's not a question of what you're willing to pay. And if they charge too much, then another insurance company will come in and underprice them. So in order to be competitive, they're going to charge an appropriate price. Now, there are certain risks that are not insurable. So, you know, no one can insure the entire world against nuclear war or climate change. There's just no one who can do that. There should be a risk premium associated with climate change. It's something that we all need to pay, and that's what determines really the appropriate price for emissions. I guess I ask it because my previous guest, Alice Hill, who was uh, one of the architects of a lot of the climate legislation and policy work domestically in the Obama White House, has had a lot to say about this, which is that you're seeing not a breakdown, but but certainly some problems within the insurance market, within the city commissions that are sort of driving the surveys that look at coastal retreat, for instance, around rising sea levels. And, And there's mounting evidence of climate risk from that perspective, but to what degree do you start embedding this into things that suddenly move up house premiums or take down house valuations? Right. Well, you know, I remember when I was at Goldman Sachs in the mid-90s, there were insurance companies that were relying on models that talked about the likelihood of uh, increased risk from hurricanes. This is not a new idea, and the insurance companies have not had their head in the sand. They've been ahead of this. They are very aware of climate change and the risks that it creates. If you want to buy insurance against wildfires in California, you're going to be paying a big premium now because they recognize the risk, and it's increasing, and it's not going to decrease anytime soon. Similarly, with sea level rise and coastal houses that are going to be much more prone to damage in the future, But, you know, it's going to be something that's slowly increasing over time, and insurance companies are aware of this. They don't insure houses, you know, 20 years into the future. You buy insurance, and you're talking about this year and maybe next year. The prices of these policies change on a regular basis. And so insurance companies actually may do quite well. Some people think, oh, the insurance companies are in trouble. No, (laughs) this is good for their business. They're going to be selling more insurance. And yes, there's going to be a lot of damages and someone's got to pay for those damages, but the insurance companies are getting paid for it. And so it's, as you say, homeowners and the impact on the value of their properties. If you have coastal property today, you're going to be paying more for insurance. That means that the value of the house is lower 
and you may have to retreat from coastal properties. As many people have pointed out, real estate in Florida right now does not have a great future. Florida, you know, has a lot of problems and you can't build a wall around Florida because the sea level rise is going to come up through the ground. So, yeah, there's issues, but there are issues for homeowners, there are issues for governments. You know, Florida has an insurance fund, but it's not really big enough to cover a major hurricane. So they're going to then rely on the federal government. So ultimately, it's going to be taxpayers mm. who pay for this. It's all of us. Mm. I want to change lanes and move it to ESG data and how you see this, because uh, obviously there's a lot of popularity. There are strategies coming out of ETFs, but there are a lot of challenges that we have to recognize. I mean, typically when we look at sort of quantitative finance, we have more than a 100 years of U.S. financial markets data. We have very little comparatively in the ESG world. It lacks history, maybe 10 years at best of as-was data. Uh, it lacks comparability how do you see this starting to filter in, though, about how we understand risk, non-financial risk, for instance? Sure. Well, ESG, of course, is environmental, social, and governance. So we're talking specifically about environmental, mm -hmm. and we're talking specifically about climate risk. So it's a little different, I would say, than the other areas. And each one requires different data, different ways of thinking about it. So let's focus on climate. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to say is, well, we've never been through this before. This is the first time. So we don't have a lot of data. We have some data over some recent periods, but we're doing an experiment. And so it's really hard to use historical data when you're starting an experiment that's growing, you know, exponentially. And when you have that situation, it's really tough. Now, we have a lot of smart people around the world who are thinking about this and gathering data and putting it into databases. But a lot of that data is not very useful. So, for example, today you have a lot of reporting of carbon emissions. Okay, Well, as we look at, say, an oil company and say, what are its carbon emissions? Most of those emissions probably come from refining operations. Well, okay, if we price carbon, then there's going to be additional expense associated with the emissions. Uh, they're going to pass on that expense. It's not very large in the overall context of the products that they're selling. So that's not a particularly relevant dimension for thinking about, is this company valued appropriately, or is it going to be impacted by a rapid transition to a low-carbon economy? It's price of oil, in that case, that really matters. And when we think about you know other industries like utilities, okay, I can look at a utility and say, oh, does it have a high-carbon footprint per unit of energy that it produces? Well, that may be relevant or it may not. Again, it depends on, in that context, probably the regulatory environment that that utility is facing. Is it protected? Is it going to be able to pass on the costs if there's a carbon price? Then the ratepayers will pay, but the utility will be fine versus a utility that might be in trouble because uh, it, it isn't able to pass on those costs. I'm wondering, too. Given your greater involvement in things like the WWF and, and World Resources, how has that expanded your appreciation for maybe alternative forms of trying to account for resources? So, for instance, I mean, we've generally been GDP-driven, which is about consumption. Um, when you look at newer forms, natural capital accounting, for instance, where the oil industry obviously does this because they're looking at reserves, but that's not a model traditionally that we've looked at in terms of water resources or, or many of the other resources. How do you think about these kinds of accounting standards? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. They're, they're terrific. That's exactly what we should be thinking about. And we haven't historically been thinking about natural capital. And so I would say climate and carbon is just one dimension of a multi-dimensional problem. If we want to protect, for example, the uh, diversity of life on this planet, and I think that's probably a good thing to do, then we have to think about the ecosystems that that diversity exists in and the value that they provide in terms of biodiversity. We don't put a price on it, so we just don't protect those ecosystems. Similarly with uh, water resources. We're not pricing water, and so we waste it. Okay, When we don't price these things, we don't value them and we don't protect them. And so really, if you're concerned about the environment, and I'm an economist, 
you got to put a price on it. You got to value those resources. So there are a number of efforts to do this. I'm actually on the board of something called the Natural Capital Project at Stanford, and they're doing exactly this, trying to develop the models that will put a price on ecosystem services provided by nature. And there's efforts to use this all around the world. And actually, interestingly, China has been leading this effort. And in China, they're creating a gross ecosystem product using some of the software from Stanford. You know, this is something that the World Bank has been very interested in. And I would hope that sooner rather than later, all countries around the world will be trying to put, you know, a value on natural capital. So last question. The audience for this podcast Frankly, there are a lot of students out there. And the question I often get is advice to give them. And so I love finishing every podcast with, with that same question to the guests. Just given the diversity of your background from academics, from science to econometrics and quantitative finance, and now this turn towards trying to better understand climate risk and think about that, what advice would you give them? First of all, thinking about your own human capital is one thing to focus on, especially when you're young or just right out of school. It's not so much about, you know, how much can I earn this year? It's about how can I build up my own skill set and, you know, think about a long-term ability to add value. I got an early start by learning computing at a time when not everyone was familiar with how to use computers. Today, oh my God, computers are so omnipresent. And uh, so certain skill sets, I would just say, are obviously important. And and being conversant with new technology is going to be so important to young people today. Now, if you're interested in the environment and so on, there's so many different areas where you can make an impact, whether it's finance or any of these different industries. It's going to be a theme that I think will be running through, you know, all of society for the next, you know, several decades, probably centuries. So look, that's, that's great. So it's been fascinating to hear from one of the foremost risk managers in finance, what climate change represents, the potential for embedding climate risk into asset allocation models, and the economic rationale for pricing greenhouse gas emissions. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Bob Litterman. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, Jason. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.